Welcome, and thanks for joining us. This is the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, bad, and ugly, where we break down the complexities of billing and coding in healthcare and discuss how to operate and hopefully excel in an industry imposed with complex and ever-changing regulations. Here are your hosts, our authority on compliance, Ross Ronan, and coding experts, Neil Green and Mark Babst. Welcome, everybody, to the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, the bad, and the ugly, with Neil and Mark today. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hi. Good afternoon. Today, I think we wanted to dive a little bit into uh, compliance audits, uh, when to do them, how to do them, and um, a, a lot of different aspects around how it creates a good quality audit to be able to affect change and to be able to mitigate any issues that that would come up. The first thing we wanted to really look at is is two types of of audits that can be conducted. One's uh, internal and and the other one is external. You know, there's good uh, thought process as, as part of a revenue cycle to have both. Um, you know, from a compliance perspective on my side, um, I typically like to see a revenue cycle have a good quality assurance, internal, robust auditing program so that they can dig into issues that they see on a, on a routine basis that are either weekly or monthly, um, but also have that external oversight uh, review to be able to say, hey, um, what does it look like from from an overarching umbrella standpoint and do do does an external uh, company look at it like there is a, a bigger issue there but let's dig into that a little bit more on on why we would look at internal uh, audits versus external audits or in addition to to internal audit uh, or external audits so let's let's talk a little bit about internal so I think uh, doing an internal audit is always good practice. Um, it, first of all, you have to get a measure of what your coders are doing. And usually you want to make sure that you're doing that uh, on some sort of basis as they come in and to the organization that you have, as well as on a periodic basis, just to sort of see that uh, they're getting new concepts and uh, new guidelines that are changing. And uh, typically internal audits also look at uh, items on the OIG work plan that's published annually, as well as um, things that have typically been on e- either previous work plans or uh, have been known to be uh, high value targets for the OIG and CMS. Mark, what are your thoughts on on how you target those specific internal issues? I mean, we heard Neil talking a little bit about the the OIG work plan and the and the OIG determined issues, right? But you know, there's a lot of different ways to determine what how you target those internal reviews, and we're always looking for the best, most accurate code and the best specificity when it comes to coding. So, so what are how do you target those specific issues and, and you know, what, what helps along those plans? Well, first of all, I, I think that all of the services that the providers provide, whether they're high valued or low valued, need to be audited by the internal staff for accuracy, both in coding and in the documentation, the completeness of the documentation. Um, 
and that creates a strong, solid baseline. Then, um, but it's also important to know that uh, the uh, OIG, SIUs, and the private insurance uh, uh, companies, investigators, will be looking at uh, high-volume services, high-valued services, and um, frankly, services where the documentation requirements are confusing. Uh, and, and so uh, you want to create both a baseline and you want to then dive deeper into the specifics of each specialty, which um, uh, brings me to uh, uh, an observation that, that we've seen over and over again, is that compliance departments who, who generally do these internal audits are uh, unfortunately uh, uh, understaffed uh, and in a multi-specialty situation, it's important to have specialty-specific auditors. Uh, and what we see is in, uh, even in a larger compliance office for a, uh, a, a large medical school, there may be four or five people at most in the uh, compliance office doing audits. And it's, in my mind, fairly impossible for for one person to be the master of uh, 20, 30, or up to 50 different specialties and subspecialties um, uh, for audit and encoding purposes. So uh, we, we, it's important to get the right expertise on this, looking at the high value services, high volume services, and um, uh, services that are uh, noted on the OIG's work plan as being targets. You, know, you brought up a, a few good points there that I want to expand on a little bit. Um, one is is really in this day and age, right, we, we are dealing with lots of changes in the rules and regulations and the guidelines, specifically around documentation issues and coding issues and, and with the new telehealth rules and, and you know, how they're how the government and Medicare is going to look at these codes going forward and the documentation requirements, it's really important, in my opinion, to have this internal audit program to make sure that everybody is up to date, they understand what the rules are, and that everybody is complying with them. Um, when it comes to who should do these internal audits, I, I think it's a, it's a great point that, that you brought up that a lot of the times compliance programs will do it. Um, the way that we have typically set up compliance programs is, you know, we, we take the next step, which is that overarching umbrella standpoint, and then work with internal QA from a revenue cycle standpoint, those that are um, monitoring and, and reviewing uh, coder performance on a routine basis, have this routine internal audit process that goes along and they end up reporting some of those aspects and, and, and their quarterly reviews on internal on their internal audits to say this is how our auditors are doing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Then we usually compare those to something that we do on an external standpoint. Do you find that 
having uh, taking compliance out of it and it's almost like the fox watching the hen house right but you do have to always do quality improvement and making sure that you're always constantly upgrading your performance when it comes to an rcm and a, and a, a coding process who do you think should be doing it outside the compliance department that's more within the day-to-day operations of the coding and billing process? Is there a, is there a better way that you all have seen that, that could produce better rates so that ultimately, if you're looking at an overarching standpoint, you don't produce a lot of extreme error rates? Well, I, I think, um, you know, that is uh, sort of blending into, I think, our next topic, which is external audits, because I think one of the things that you pick up from an external audit is the things that uh, you may not have, and, and Mark alluded to this on the internal audit staff, if you're using compliance people, you may not have enough. Um, it's hard in organizations to build experts in things that are actually validated. That, and once you start going outside the compliance office to get those areas of expertise in a integrated health system, that's very, very difficult to do. Um, so um, I, I think that that's where one of the advantages of external audits start to come in is that you get an independent analysis. A lot of these organizations that do uh, external audits have a lot more bandwidth in terms of uh, specialty expertise as well as depth of their benches um, so that you can actually uh, have people analyzing your work and making suggestions that your organization may not have thought of or may not have the subject matter expertise that is available through some of these organizations. Uh, it's not true of all external coding audit companies, but it certainly is true of many. I'd like to add to that, the, that um, one of the problems with uh, reliant, over-reliance on internal audits is the, uh, the potential for institutionalizing what you don't know. Um, that um, it, or institutionalizing mistakes um, if you have auditors who are not familiar with a, a specialty um, uh, opining on someone's accuracy um, without a solid basis in that specialty, you will uh, create errors. Those errors will be respected and institutionalized, and it's uh, it takes an external audit to to uncover them and to and to correct them. So what Neil said is very very important. You want to avoid uh, what we I, we also call the four wall syndrome of of keeping the uh, information the wrong information circulating without throughout the 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 organization and not correcting it not knowing that there's an error. And I, I just want to say, uh, again, we've talked a little bit about this before, is <laughs> whether you're doing internal, external, or both, um, in, in order to have a compliance plan that's uh, in line with the Department of Justice guidelines on coding compliance from 2019, 
you have to have a budget for it. And, you know, one of the things we're seeing this year and the year of COVID um, <clears throat> is that uh, you're hearing organizations say, well, we're, we're going to put off our audit till next year. And um, uh, <laughs> I, I want to uh, make sure they may just listen to this. Uh, that, that is not a defense <laughs> for not doing an audit. And um, it, you know, the, the downturn that uh, organizations have had in revenue, uh, one of the very first things I'm seeing them do is cut their budgets for audits in an effort to balance their books. Uh, nothing could be more foolish than doing that for two reasons. One, it turns your plan into a sham plan. You can't decide when you're fiscally sound to do things and when you're not to do an audit. That's not the purpose of an audit plan. And the second part of it is that um, if you're not doing audits and, and you are in a crunch, the best way to find revenue opportunities is in fact to audit and see where the mistakes are made. So it, it's a, a really a double barrel shotgun that people are pointing at their heads when they do that. You know, when, when I look at it, typically I see external audit, external auditing and audit processes are generally cheaper than the human resource aspect of maintaining those individuals within a compliance program or, or something else. If, if they're actively in an RCM uh, situation where they can, uh, they can do some coding or they can do some, some work product that, um, having them in the compliance program or internal audit, the human resource aspect of it is much more expensive than an external auditor coming in and taking a look at it. And the other thing, um, as a compliance officer, I really enjoy the indemnity it brings uh, by having an external audit uh, come in and take a look at the books and, and or take a look at the coding and billing and really determine whether or not we have an exposure. And, and we can rely upon that opinion by that external auditor to say, this is what I believe. And I know you all take that very, uh, very important and, and you, you stand behind your audits that you, that you all do. And I, and I think that that's very comforting from a compliance officer standpoint. And I'll tell you, it's very comforting from a executive compliance committee as well as a board perspective when we produce those error rates or talk through what those error rates are, everybody can feel comfortable that um, the right people did the right thing and, and we have assurances. So, so that, that's really important as well. And the only other thing that I would add is on numerous occasions, um, you know, I've had to actually produce some external audits that, that we've done uh, on a quarterly basis in response to a MAC, a ZPIC, an OIG audit to say, look, I understand your audit results were X, but we just did an external audit of, of this exact same issue a month and a half ago, and we're going to stand up to what, what our results were. And hopefully they were good, otherwise you're not going to argue that point. Um, but ultimately, we can use those in, in comparison with any other type of third-party review that comes in uh, from a governmental perspective. Really hard to do that from an internal uh, internal audit perspective, and so so from my from my side of the house, both of internal and external audit programs complement each other and really work to to synergize the whole coding and billing aspect of it. Yeah, I'd like to just add one thing, and this was a, a embellishment on 
the comment that Mark made earlier about the, you know, when the typically you, you see that there's a fairly small cadre of people in a compliance office um, and yet you can have hundreds, if not thousands of doctors that they're trying to analyze. Um, part and parcel of that is a picture or a reflection of the organization deciding that uh, compliance is a necessary evil and that there's only one side to it, that you're only finding mistakes that are being made. But there is the flip side where you can actually identify revenue opportunities. And it's, it's uncanny because I can't think of an audit we've ever performed where we haven't found that. And yet most CFOs, uh, VPs of finance, look at this strictly as a duty we have to do rather than something that is important that we do. And, and those two reasons are extraordinarily important bookends, the one where you protect yourself and the other one where you find revenue opportunities. And then one last piece, which would be, uh, it's interesting to see how many organizations start off and they may have a base of primary care and a handful of specialties, but in today's merger and acquisition healthcare world, end up adding specialties that the people in the compliance office have never seen before. So this leaves them with a dilemma if you're not doing an external audit and, and uh, being able to have access to resources that bring that specialty expertise to you. You may have people literally opening up books for the first time on a topic and trying to figure out what the heck that specialty is all about. Yeah, I would like to add to what Neil just said is that um, uh, a, a, a good coder really should welcome an audit because it's an, it's an educational process. It's, it's, it's to support their, their coding to, and to recognize their accuracy and, and to identify where they can get better. So it, 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 it should, the coders themselves should not look at this as punitive or trying to get me. It's, it's trying to Im help improve their performance. And it really should never be an I got you moment, no matter, no matter what you look at it. And there's a lot of people, a lot of executives with outside the compliance and the billing side of it really see a lot of these audits as, as somebody trying to, to say, I got you, I found that you've done something or I've, you know, I'm going to hold somebody accountable for something. And that does happen. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen, but that's not the intent, right? The intent is to make sure that it's accurate and, and supportive of, of what you're actually doing. I'm a big fan, always have been of letting the experts do that work. Right. And, and, and that really is important to be able to get the best quality audit that you possibly can. When we talk about who should be doing the audits and, and, and what those qualifications of the auditors are. Can we talk a little bit about that, uh, you know, the specialty specific uh, issues that I mean, both of you all touched on it a little bit, like when you are doing a new business line, how do you get that new specialty in? You don't want your auditors to be opening up the CPT manual for the first time and going, how do I do anesthesia or how do I do <clears throat> inpatient services, right? So so, so tell me a little bit about the qualifications of the auditors related to the, the specialty specifications specificity that would be important to, to be able to engage with. 
Well, I, I think you know, a lot of people rely on uh, initials and credentials. Um, <clears throat> we like to take it a step further than that. Uh, there's lots of uh, compliance credentials you can take, and I never want to poo-poo education. Education's uh, uh, always valuable. But I think sometimes people rely on uh, certified ed, uh, auditing credentials or certified compliance credentials uh, exclusively. And um, I think it's important to have some sort of test of people's skills that does pose a challenge <clears throat> for a lot of organizations, whether you're doing that internally or the external uh, organization is doing it. But we're I know in our organization, we take that very seriously. There's extensive testing that takes place in each specialty. People have to prove that. They have to prove that they have the ability to be able to explain clearly how they analyze a record and represent that in both written and verbal form. Uh, because not all coders are, uh, no matter how good they are or talented they are, uh, have the skills of being able to do comparative work and to be able to explain their findings to someone else. And I think those uh, gifts are, uh, uh, they're not uh, unique, but they're in short supply. And, and so um, being able to find a company that can deliver people who are uh, extremely well vetted and people who are not generalists, because there are a lot of audit companies, unfortunately, that use people that have these uh, certifications as though they are experts in everything. And that's just not the case. So we try to make sure that people's uh, uh, recent uh, information and touching of a specialty is current so that they, um, uh, we can know that we're talking about people that understand the nomenclature of what they're looking at. They've experienced it. In the case of auditors, we require them to have five years of a single specialty background. So uh, it becomes like second nature to them because all, all the things they've seen are not the first time, but things that they've seen over and over and over again and have studied those issues and uh, extensively. So no, no, all coders are not created equal, really. <laughs> that is definitely the case. You've seen one, you've seen one. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I hear education's important. Um, second, second step is really, you know, making sure that that individual from a testing standpoint really understands what they're doing, how they're doing, and and constant feedback because because even though you've got those initials, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're proficient. Talk to me a little bit more about the experience side of it because I think that's really important. Um, I've had a number of clients in a number of uh, different situations where they didn't really want a certified coder, but what they really wanted was a certified coder who's been involved in that specific industry, or I call it a business line or a service service line to say, this is how we do things. And you really receive that extensive training on that specialty and get the experience. Like you said, five years, whatever. Um, tell me a little bit more about how, how much you put weight on the experience 
um, and then testing them versus just the education part of it to kind of weigh those for me? Well, I think the experience factor is, uh, you know, if I were going to give something a percentage and I'm looking at a single line uh, service line auditor, I, I'd give that about a 70% weight versus the credential. Um, <clears throat> the credential is important um, and not necessarily, especially credentials so much as um, being able to have a credential so they've had some sort of background. Um, and there are specialties that we are engaged in where it's more important to have specialty credentials in my mind than it is others. But boy, that uh, experience factor and being able to prove through a testing methodology that the skill sets are actually there uh, is essential because um, you can have people's resumes look very rosy and uh, they can have a whole collection of uh, places that they worked. And uh, yeah, of course, in this day and age where you call people up for references, they're usually saying an absolute minimum for <laughs> legal purposes about who they had before. And so uh, really determining whether the people are have the skill sets to do the job is all about that testing and being able to know that they truly understand that specialty. And uh, of course, the more time that somebody has it, the greater probability that they will truly be a master of it. And uh, too often I see people that are um, more interested in accumulating uh, specialty certifications than they are really mastering a specialty. Uh, to me, uh, the, the testing is, I, I agree with Neil that the, the experience is, is 70%, but the testing is critically important. You know, I, I, I'm old enough to remember uh, President Ronald Reagan saying, trust but verify. And uh, that verification of the knowledge that you need for a specific specialty is really essential uh, in the auditing process. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's just a, a big deal. It's very, very important. Now that we know who and what, uh, let's, let's talk about how much, right? What, what is the frequency of these audits? How often should they be happening? Um, you, know, you know, from my perspective, just to, to kick it off, you know, it's about managing risk from a compliance officer uh, standpoint, making sure that risk does not spread across multiple time periods so that you can have a delineation in time and say, this is where I've identified this issue and it's only for a, you know, a, a period of time and does not look systemic. So, so when we're talking about um, frequency, what do you recommend? When do you start? When do you start doing this audit process, whether it's internal or external, or, or if there is a difference between the two, like maybe you start internal at this one and at this time period and you start external at that. So talk a little bit about when and frequency and when do you start these reviews? I, th I think starting uh, the internal reviews, like, again, um, you want to be able to, whether a coder's coding, a doctor's coding, if they're new, you want to be able to do that right away so that you can start assessing as 
their skill sets because unfortunately most organizations don't have any sort of formal testing process of, of coding skills, uh, no matter what size they are. Um, you know, I've seen people test people about, you know, what is a modifier or what is a CPT code, but I haven't seen anything that was really a strenuous exam. Um, so one of the things that I <clears throat> think you're doing again with that internal, um, the internal audit is you're checking a variety of different issues. Again, OIG uh, issues, crises issues, high value services. So you're blending things throughout the year. And I think any good audit program is something that you're always focusing on the next item. Um, and in terms of the external audits, I think the DOJ helps us with guidance on that because, uh, you know, I, I've had clients uh, uh, where they've uh, had a two-year window cycle, which the DOJ clearly uh, dismantled that notion that you could be doing something like that, which I, I could never understand because the uh, CPT codes change on an annual basis. You want to be able to verify those CPT changes are being worked into your system. People understand them, understand how they change the coding protocols. Uh, we have massive changes coming our way in 2021. We had massive changes in uh, 2020 because of telemedicine expansion. Um, and, and, you know, so you, you want to be able to at least have an annual audit. The way I look at annual audits is the organization needs to have some sort of target of accuracy. And that target of accuracy helps you determine what your schedule is for external audits after the initial audit. And so, you know, typically we like to, and I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts, is to have some sort of thing where there's, here's the target score. If you get that, you're probably done for the year on external audit. If you're done, uh, if you didn't achieve that target, then you're in the remediation mode and you're trying to validate the remediations working. So, Again, I think that ties into your comment, Ross, about doing it on a quarterly basis uh, for the people that fall into that category. Uh, but the biggest caveat I have is a lot of the plans um, will define processes up to that point. And then there's a point at which they sort of stop. And so you can get in this cycle where you remediate audit, remediate, audit, and can go on indefinitely in some people's plans. Uh, so again, referring back to the 2019 DOJ guidance, um, they made it very clear that they expect both that validation the, of the remediation to have worked so that you're no longer sending in claims that are erroneous. And then more importantly, that in some short period of time that's taking place. So people that would do things like, okay, we're gonna have a teaching event after uh, an audit that didn't go so well for an individual, we're gonna have that in six months, that would not be acceptable. That would not be considered timely. That means you're sending out claims even after the audit for six additional months, potentially incorrectly. Uh, so, that that ties in nicely with your quarterly concept. And then at some point, 
in the plan. There should be for external audits uh, a process where you say enough is enough for either physician, coder, whatever, and you're either replacing the coder or you're replacing the physician with a coder, one of the two, uh, so that uh, you're taking a different step to try to wrestle the problem down uh, and, and correct it. And you can prove that you've taken a different step and not just accepted that you keep getting the same result. Yeah, when I look at an audit schedule and an audit plan, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a living, breathing thing, right? So you have to have a starting point, but you never know where you're going to end up. You may, like you said, you may do a, an external review quarter one, but it may be, you know, followed up by a lot of focus reviews or probe reviews on very specific things um, to be able to, to drill down into a, a code issue, a specific code issue. Um, and, and, and the way that I look at uh, the audit process is really just a, it, it's fluid, right? You come up with a schedule at first and then, and then who knows how it takes off. One of the things that's not okay is just to say, like you said before, two years, every four years, we're just going to look at it when we want to or put our heads in the sand. That generally never works. Um, from that perspective. So, it, Mark, anything on follow-up audits or probe audits that, that would be important on, on how frequently that you may want to do those? Well, yes. Um, I, I, if I want you to remember what Neil said, that we rarely do an audit where we don't find revenue opportunities. So you don't want to have to be leaving money on the table month after month after month, or year after year after year. Um, nor do you want to be submitting incorrect claims that may present uh, uh, legal exposure um, with big, huge fines and uh, even uh, criminal uh, penalties. So uh, you, you want to do the... Uh, there's a, a reason, good reasons to do frequent audits. Um, and like I said, in I think our, our very first talk, um, what we recommend is uh, to try to uh, d divide the budget for, for audits into quarter, quarters, uh, for quarterly audits or for larger practices, monthly. So, uh, uh, and you, you do certain groups this month and another group of uh, uh, practitioners or coders next month so that you're on a, a regular cycle and auditing becomes a natural part of the practice's operation. Um, the feedback keeps on coming. The improvement is continuous. Uh, the, the revenue is optimized the accounts receivable rejections and denials are minimized. It, it just, um, it, it, it's like the oil that, that keeps the engine running in some ways uh, is accuracy. Uh, so uh, I hope I answered your question. 
<laughs> you did, you did. And you know, it's, 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 if you don't look, you don't know, and you never know uh, right. how to how to improve things. So I think that was a, a great way to wrap it up. And, you know, we talked about some really great things today related to internal and external auditing, uh, how, how often we should do it, and then really who should be doing those reviews. And I really wanted to thank you all for your time today. I think it was produce some great information and um, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Coding Compliance Podcast. The good, bad, and ugly. Sponsored by Ronan Healthcare Consultants and the Coding Network. With our hosts, Ross Ronan, Neil Green, and Mark Babs. Please tune into iTunes and Spotify on the first Friday of each month for a new episode. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our podcast website or leave us a review.